0: In this episode, I'll be recapping the Orioles last week, starting in Toronto against the Blue Jays, and finishing in Williamsport for the Little League World Classic against the Boston Red Sox. I'll also be discussing whether or not Brandon Hyde should consider starting Ryan McKenna over Austin Hayes, and I will be previewing this week's action for the Baltimore Orioles and much, much more next on the Birdie Breakdown Podcast. Hey there, Orioles fans, and welcome back to the Birdie Breakdown Podcast, Episode 6. I'm one of your hosts, Ella Cayenella, the owner of Orioles Unified on both Instagram and Twitter. Unfortunately, my other co-host, Nelson Dorsey of the Birdland Beat on Instagram and Twitter, wasn't able to join me for today's episode, so I'll be recapping all the action from the past week. Starting off in the first game of her series of the week, the Orioles traveled up to Toronto to face the Blue Jays in an important series for a multitude of reasons surrounding the wildcard chase. In Game 1 Baltimore um, in game one on Monday, Baltimore blew out the Blue Jays 7-3, to courtesy of both the Ryans, McKenna and Mountcastle. With Yusei Kikuchi starting for the Blue Jays, Brandon Hyde opted to put Ryan McKenna into the starting lineup, as opposed to Cedric Mullins, who has struggled mightily against lefties this year. Mullins has batted a 568 OPS and 168 plate appearances against lefties as McKenna has been absolutely phenomenal against lefties Overall, this move definitely paid off as McKenna delivered on Monday, uh, going 3 for 5 with two doubles and a single picking up an RBI in the process. It was his first extra-base hit night in McKenna's brief career, a uh, brief big league career with the two doubles, a welcome sight for all Orioles fans to see. The other Ryan, Mountcastle, the new proclaimed Prime Minister of Canada, according to Kevin Brown, started his night with a bang, a two-run shot into the second deck in the third inning to extend Baltimore's lead to 3 nothing. Mountcastle walked two times on Monday. Another indicator that he was seeing the ball really well because we all know that, his, that he's ready to fire on the first pitch and that the major question marks around him as a prospect were his plate discipline which have been shown firsthand this year and throughout all of his big league career. Uh, as for Kyle Bradish, we got the full Kyle Bradish experience. Uh, Bradish didn't make it out of the fifth but showed flashes of his full potential with his nasty stuff uh, and he also displayed his struggles which might be the reality of him as a starter in the big leagues. Bradish gave up all three runs earned while walking uh Four and striking out four on Monday night, Brandon Hyde went to his bullpen and relied on it, and they came up huge as they have done all year long, completely stifling the Jays' order after Bradish exited in the fourth. Felix Bautista sh- uh, shut the door on Toronto, securing a seven to three W for the Orioles, a big win that they needed in the wild card race. In Game Two on Tuesday, the Jays got off to another hot start. Uh, the Jays got off to a hot start. Uh, not a welcome sight for Orioles fans. After a leadoff single allowed by Dean Kramer to George Springer, Vladimir Guerrero got both himself and Springer home with an absolute missile of a home run into the Blue Jays' bullpen. Now, the crazy thing about this Guerrero homer wasn't any ordinary homer. Its launch angle was at 15 degrees, which is really rare. And you're accustomed to seeing hitters uh, hit, uh, balls, hit homers at launch angles in the mid-30s. But this one was different. It was a line drive, mostly like a golf shot, hit at a scorching 111-mile-per-hour exit velocity. Dean Kramer's face summed up the whole the whole thing, as he just looked flabbergasted on the mound. Luckily, Kramer settled down after that, and he also stifled the Blue Jays' order from there on out. Kramer went seven innings, six of them scoreless, allowing seven hits, two runs, all in the first, and all were earned, and striking out six. But the story of the night was his pitch arsenal. He completely abandoned his cutter, which led him into trouble against Boston in his last outing before this. And instead, he turned to a sinker, which was a surprise, but it was a very effective pitch. According to StatCast, Creamer got 14 swings and misses with his sinker, a pitch that he throws less than 5% of the time. The other storyline of the night was Adley Rutschman, uh, the rookie catcher for Baltimore. Rutschman was facing off against Alec Manoa, as was the rest of the Baltimore lineup. Manoa is a Cy Young candidate for the Blue Jays, and he's their ace, so this was not an easy task at all. Manoa was cruising through four and two-thirds innings before Cedric Mullins went deep, and I guess that ignited the whole team, because on the next pitch, Adley followed up Cedric with a solo tank into the right field bleachers, tying the game up 2-2 to on back-to-back homers. This wasn't any ordinary homer. This ball was launched by Adley. Regman's homer was tracked at 439 feet, according to StatCast, meaning it would have hit the warehouse in Baltimore. He continues to be an on-base machine, walking once, singling once, and hitting that mammoth homer on Tuesday night. Now, Felix Bautista and Dylan Tate relieved Kramer after seven innings of work, and were pretty much untouchable out of the bullpen, once again, for the second night in a row. Bautista slammed the door on Toronto, this time picking up his seventh save of the year, as Baltimore defeated the Blue Jays by a final of 4-2 to on Tuesday night. In the third and final game of the series, Baltimore's offense got completely silenced by Ross Stripling, and Baltimore's bullpen imploded, a really rare sight to see this year, but one that Orioles fans have been accustomed to seeing over the past three years. As I mentioned, Baltimore got shut down by Ross Stripling. Stripling, who wasn't even supposed to start this series, but Jose Barrios' start push back because of his struggles was dominant against Baltimore. tripling with seven and a third innings, throwing a perfect game up until then, uh, along with a no-hitter, was before Cedric Mullins broke it up with a blooper into center field. Now, this was PTSD for Orioles fans everywhere, but luckily, they were able to save this one off again as they did to Drew Rasmussen the, uh, the Sunday uh, beforehand. Austin Voth, the Orioles starter was near perfect for the uh, for Baltimore on Wednesday and give, gave them everything that they needed, ah. Uh, but the despite the poor offensive performance, Both went six innings, allowing two hits, walking one, and striking out three. Continuing to build on his resurgence after being claimed by Baltimore off of waivers in early June. Unfortunately for Baltimore, as I mentioned, their bullpen just completely imploded with CNL Perez and Joey Cribble not being able to back up Both on Wednesday as both got shelled by the Toronto lineup. The bottom of the seventh was particularly ugly, as that's where Toronto did all their damage as they scored six runs, and that proved to be enough enough at the end. Robinson Chirinos, finally, and I mean, this was just ugly all around for Baltimore, finally got the Orioles' offense to break through with an RBI single up the middle in the eighth inning, but by then it was too little, too late. The O's fell to Toronto in the series finale, but won the series overall two games to one. The Orioles were scheduled for an off-day on Thursday, but because of a postponement back as April at home against the Cubs, they were scheduled to make up that game, a Thursday afternoon matinee back home. The Cubs were coming off a series in Washington, so they added in an extra day and flew to Baltimore for this matinee. Offensive woes continued to shine in this game, and not in a good way, with Baltimore's lineup being dominated by Adrian Sampson who hadn't had a particularly good season up to this game. On the bright side, though, for Baltimore, Spencer Watkins was dealing through five innings before Wilson Contreras hit a bomb off of him in the sixth inning, breaking the scoreless tie for Chicago. And Brandon Hyde opt- opted to go with Joey Crable on back-to-back days. Uh, and Crable was solid, but this is where the questionable decisions came in, one of many that afternoon for Hyde. Crable shut the door on Chicago on the sixth and seventh, but Hyde opted in to send opted to send him out for the eighth a decision that would come back to bite Baltimore in the butt. With Brian Baker and Dylan Tate warming and ready in the pen, Crable gave up a solo shot to Rafael Ortega and Wilson Contreras before being pulled with two outs in the eighth inning. But by then, it was, again, another scenario of being too little, too late. It also wasn't like Baker or Tate were ready. I mean, they were ready. You could have sent them in. But, oh, well, 2020 hindsight. What can you do? Baltimore scored twice in the bottom of the eighth but stranded Ryan Mountcastle out third, who was thrown out on the plate on a Ramon Urias fielder choice with one out in the eighth. Going to the bottom of the ninth, Baltimore still down 3-2. Austin Hayes started off the ninth inning on a, a gift by Chicago, a fielding error by third baseman Zach McKinstry. Uh, then came another questionable decision. With Tyler Nevin looming on deck, presumably pinch-hitting for Regnard-Odor, High called him back. I like this decision because uh, because Odor has historically been a, a clutch uh, when the game matters the most, when it's in the balance. In fact, uh, as I mentioned on the previous pod, Odor's uh, six of his 11 homers have come in clutch scenarios, uh, clutch-like game scenarios, so I like this decision. But Odor decided to bunt on his on the first pitch he saw at his first sack bunt of the year, and it didn't go well as he popped it out to his first baseman P.J. Higgins in foul territory. Whether Hyde told him to butt or not, it, st- it still doesn't make much sense at all. I still don't understand why you would do that. Uh, you were one hit away from potentially a tie in the game, and you're relying on your nine hitter with one out to move the runner up. Luckily, Jorge Mateo, in the nine hole, as I mentioned, singled, moving Hayes to second, flipping the order back to Cedric Mullins. On a one nothing <laughs> count, Cedric Mullins hit a soft liner to Nick Magical at second, and Austin Hayes was a- doubled off a second, ending the game. Yes, this was bad, but even if Hayes wasn't caught at second, uh, the the shortstop, Nico Horner, would have tossed it to first anyway. What, what most people don't realize is that Jorge Mateo was off of second, and he would have been picked off off of first, and he would have been picked off as well. So the game would have ended either way. Either way, no matter how you sum it up, it was terrible base running and just a, uh, the absolute lowest point Baltimore had been at all year. The make-or-break moments... Came down to the base running and it was super poor all game, costing Baltimore in the end. So after that pitiful loss on Thursday, Baltimore began a three-game series against Boston at home. And this was a series that could make or break their postseason chances. If they got swept by Boston, they would uh, they would run the risk of being uh, dropping below Boston in the standings, but they were ready for uh, looking for vengeance in game one, and the Orioles did indeed get vengeance on Boston. So I mean Lyle started game one and he performed pretty much as poorly as a starting pitcher can perform. Lyles went four innings, but gave up nine hits and four runs. All of them were earned. Luckily, the Orioles' offense came out guns blazing, making up for the pathetic offensive performances the past two days against Chicago and Toronto, respectively. Baltimore hit five homers lighting up the the sky, and these were all courtesy of Jorge Mateo, Adley Rutschman, Anthony Santander, Ryan Mountcastle, and Ramon Urias. Santander and Rutschman, both went three for five and were both a triple shy of the cycle. Through five innings, the score was 15-9 Baltimore, a score that you rarely see today. It was more of a football game than anything. In a game that featured a variety of things, usually featured throughout a three-game series, this game had it all. It showcased nonstop scoring, little-to-none pitching, 37 hits, 25 runs, and two errors, but the Orioles staved off Boston 15-10, winning Game 1 of the weekend series. In Game 2 on Saturday, it was a pitcher's duel between Kyle Bradish and Michael Waka. Boston finally broke through on an Alex Verdugo RBI single uh, in the 5th, and, and they continued to tack on the lead with a Kike Hernandez two-run bomb and to tuck behind the left-field corner to make it 3 nothing Boston in the 6th. Baltimore scored twice in the 7th. Via Kyle Starrett's RBI groundout and a Jorge Mateo uh, scoring on a wild on a wild pitch by John Schreiber, still dust trailed three two heading into the ninth. Christian Arroyo hit a huge insurance double for Boston and left scoring Jaron Duran, and that that proved to be the the difference maker in the game as Boston went ahead four two. Baltimore scored once in the bottom of the ninth after a Jorge Mateo triple, but Rugnet Dor flew out to deep center just a few feet away from the warning track, just missing a homer as Baltimore fell to Boston in Game 2 of the weekend series. In the final game of the week, Game 3, the Orioles flew to Williamsport, Pennsylvania for the annual Little League Classic. Baltimore started off smoking hot, with RBI singles by Anthony Santander and Ramon Urias in the first inning, putting Baltimore ahead 2-0. Kike Hernandez responded with an RBI single in the top of the second off of Dean Creamer cutting the Orioles' lead in half. Premer was pretty much spectacular for the rest, of the, uh, the rest of his outing on Sunday night, despite that Kike Hernandez single, but got pulled with an early leash by Brandon Hyde. Nonetheless, Premer was spectacular despite the short leash. Hyde went to Tate, which was a smart decision, as Tate worked out of trouble in the sixth, and he was dominant in the seventh. But Hyde repeated the same mistake he made on Thursday afternoon. He kept a reliever in for too long. Tate usually works one inning at his max, But Hyde opted to keep him in for the third, and it ended up costing him. Tate gave up an opposite-field homer to Frankie Cordero, tying the game at two in the top of the eighth. Then Hyde decided to pull him, and he gave way to CNL Perez, who has been fabulous this year. Uh, Perez was dominant, and he continued to be fabulous tonight as he shut down the Red Sox order in the eighth. Then, in the bottom of the half of the eighth, this is where the Orioles responded. Ramon Urias walked on six pitches, uh, off of Matt Barnes, and Alex Cora brought in John Schreiber, who had been a diamond in the rough for Boston this year, but luckily tonight for the Orioles, he wasn't as sharp. He hit Austin Hayes with the first pitch he threw and walked immediately walked Rignetto door on four pitches, all missing the zone. Jorge Mateo came up with an enormous opportunity with the bases loaded, and boy, oh boy, did he deliver. He smoked a bases-clearing double past the diving Devers at third, and this cleared the bases, and it was a three-run double giving Baltimore a three-run lead with a little insurance heading into the ninth. This is where the mountain, Felix Bautista, came out of the bullpen. He allowed a solo homer to Xander Bogart. Luckily, Bautista settled in by then and slammed the door on Boston, striking out Rafael Devers, and uh, getting J.D. Martinez and Christian Orell to both ground out to the right side to end the game. My personal player of the week has to be Dean Creamer. He pitched in two games this week at Toronto on Tuesday and versus Boston on Sunday night. And he was fabulous. Uh, I was stuck between choosing three people, Adley restaurant, Anthony Santon, there and Dean Kramer. All all had their cases. And although Adley and Santon there were respectively elite this this week, I ultimately decided to go with Dean Kramer because he would, he pleasantly surprised me in both of his outings. In his first game against Toronto, after giving up that Homer to Vladdy, he could have easily uh, gone down, but he showed his grit and he bounced back, shutting down Toronto's order and giving Baltimore a chance to win, which they ultimately did. And as I mentioned, he used his sinker as a strikeout pitch, uh, a pitch that uh, is used less than 5% of the time normally in his arsenal, but it was really effective on Tuesday night. Uh, He picked up the W on Tuesday, and he was fabulous for the Orioles as a whole. On Sunday night, looking to build off the momentum, he got himself into a couple jams early, uh, giving up the RBI single to Kike Hernandez, but he wiggled out of uh, the majority of them and then he reached cru- cruise control. And this was a major factor in this. 17, un- a major factor in his success on Sunday night. 17 of his first 19 pitchers were strikes. Key uh, to success for any starting pitcher. And ultimately, although he was pulled o- early, he still qualified for a win but didn't get it. Even though he didn't get the win after going 0-7 last year with a 7.55 ERA, and I assumed he was a walking loss every game last year, he has improved to a 5-4 and record with a 3.45 ERA this year. It's just really refreshing to see. Yeah, another pitcher on the staff continues to show his improvement this year. It's just been fun to see from Dean Kramer. Now, my moment of the week is pretty obvious. It was the Orioles' five-run home run game on Friday against the Red Sox. What else can be said? The Orioles busted out their offensive woes in a colossal way, scoring 15 runs in five innings. Uh, As I mentioned, Adley Rushman, Anthony Santander, Ramon Urias, Jorge Mateo, and Ryan Mountcastle all went deep, lighting up the Baltimore sky that night. Coming up next, we'll take a look at how hot Ryan McKenna has been at at the plate this month for Baltimore, and should Brandon Hyde seriously consider studying McKenna over Austin Hayes? But first, I have to stop for a second and give a huge shout-out to Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor by Spotify, you're missing out. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need, all in one place. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosted on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast to listening platforms such as Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, etc., or wherever you get your podcast. Anchor is free, uh, is every Anchor is free and everything you need in one place, and that's and that's the best feature about it. It's free. Download the Anchor app or go to Anchor FM. That is Anchor FM to get started today. Ryan McKenna continues to help the Orioles win, and I want to dive a little deeper into why McKenna has been a resurgence to the Orioles. As we know, McKenna was phenomenal in the Blue Jay series earlier this week. Tuesday night really showed this, as McKenna was penciled into the lineup with Cedric Mullen starting as well. I think this was a huge step for McKenna, as Hyde is finally been beginning to trust McKenna both at the plate and defensively, where he has thrived all year long. Uh, Brandon Hyde has usually opted to start McKenna in more of a utility role, uh, but or because one of the regular three outfielders, outfielders such as Hayes Mullins or Sontag, there have been out or been dealing with a nagging injury. As we've more recently seen, he's been platooned with Cedric Mullins. But this was a big step for Ryan, like I mentioned, with a healthy Austin Hayes sitting on the bench. McKenna took over Hayes's spot in right field, moving Saunton there to left. I believe that McKenna was put into the Orioles lineup because he's been fantastic. He's been playing fantastic ball as of late showing up on Orioles fans' radar radars everywhere recently. Coming into play, McKenna's war has been sitting at 1.3, which is the same as Austin Hayes's war, another stat that leads you to believe maybe you, we should start McKenna over Hayes. Uh, only five other Orioles have a better war wins above replacement than, than McKenna. Adley Rushman, Cedric Mullins, Jorge Mateo, Anthony Santander, and Ramon Urias. Since July 4th, McKenna has been smoking hot. Even though he's cooled off a little this month, he's still 9 of 30 at the dish in August, which is a 300 average. That's really good for McKenna, and the major factor in his resurgence has been that he's uh, reduced his strikeouts drastically, a major reason why he's smoking hot. McKenna has only struck out seven times this month, up to this point. McKenna has always been a guy who can hit, which was showcased down in the oil system, particularly in AAA Norfolk. Where he, was, uh, where he would hit a homer on what it seemed every game. Even when he got sent down this year, he was hitting homers left and right. He hit, had a three-homer game, and then boom, he was back in the major leagues. But the big key for McKenna is making contact so he can utilize his speed. And frankly, it's been impressive to see the strides he has made this past month and a half. He was a strikeout machine early in his career, and this stat is evident about that. Uh, His strikeout rate in April was sitting at an atrocious 44%. To put that in perspective, Brett Phillips, who's not on the roster anymore, but it seemed like he struck out every time while he was, his strikeout rate is at 41%. In July, it went down to a solid 29%, and now in August, his K rate is sitting at 17%, which is a sign that he's seen the ball well. McKenna's WRC Plus is sitting at 94%, which is in the tier of being pretty much average for a major league player. On the other side of the equation, Austin Hayes has been borderline awful at the plate, and he's mostly unplayable. Well, Hayes was really solid in the field, he he isn't seeing or hitting the ball as he was during the first half of the year. During the first half of the year, many Orioles fans, including me, believed that Hayes was a borderline all-star and he was up until June 22nd, where he hit for the cycle in six innings against the Nationals before that game got postponed. Austin was the only the sixth Oriole to ever hit for the cycle. The first since Jonathan VR did it in 2019. What felt like such a high point in the season for Hayes turned into the lowest points. It turned into the lowest of the lows as he's hit that recently. Uh, a week after Hayes hit for the cycle, he banged up his left hand after getting hit by a pitch and was out for a couple of days before returning to the lineup. Now, at the time, I didn't think of it, but this injury would come back to bite him, and I still believe that it's still bugging him. However, the All-Star break couldn't have come at a better time for Austin. It was a chance for him to get fully healthy and heal up all the nagging take attack injuries he had. However, he still appears to be banged up after getting hit on the hand again and again, and the other ticky tack injuries, like I mentioned here and there. Since June twenty second, Hayes has been hitting a putrid one eighty six with a two fifty on base percentage, a three twenty four slugging, and a 68 WRC plus. Now the WRC plus is really bad, which is in the awful tier. If it's six year below, it's awful. So he's been bad. But the most concerning sign is that he's only accumulated three homers and eleven RBIs in two months. Almost two months. A very concerning sign. Well, while Hayes has been fantastic in September toward the end of the year, uh, he he's just shown signs that he's not 100%. And if you're Brandon Hyde, you might consider benching Hayes every couple of days for McKenna, even though McKenna has been smoking hot and Hayes has been ice cold. However, Friday night looked as though it could be a resurgence for Hayes, as it, as it looked like he might have finally broken out of his slump. Uh, Hayes went three for four, with a drawing a walk, a single, two doubles, and one RBI. And this was his first big night offensively in a month and a half. Now, do I think Hyde will start McKenna over Hayes? I truly doubt that Brandon Hyde would do that for, multi, for, for multiple reasons. Despite each the direction that each has gone, has been, and gone at the plate in the past month, month and a half, Hayes has been a staple for Baltimore's outfield for the past four or five years since we drafted him in 2015. So benching him would likely derail all the confidence he has left. With McKenna, you know where you're going to get defensively. You know he has speed, but offensively, he's like a bag of chocolates. You never know what you're gonna get. So should Austin Hayes, uh, should Austin Hayes be benched in favor for McKenna? I don't believe so. I think it would hurt the team as a whole. Even though Austin has been batting poor, poorly at the plate, I I don't think it's the right decision. Now, in the final segment, I'll be previewing uh, the next week's action for Baltimore. The Orioles have a much-needed off day, one of the, uh, one of the uh, two that they have this month, the first in 19 days for them. Baltimore will go back home and start a, an enormous series against the Chicago White Sox, who still are in the thick of things despite all the injuries and on- and off-field drama they've gone through this year. Uh, it, it, Baltimore will catch a tough break in Game 1, with Dylan Cease pitching for Chicago. The pitching matchups go like this. In Game 1, Dylan Cease will face up against both. Cease is sporting a 12-5 record with a 2.09 ERA, and he is definitely in the conversation as a Cy Young candidate. Uh, Austin Voth, however, on the flip side of the equation, is 3-1 with a 4.86 ERA. Voth has been spectacular since coming over, so you never know where you're going to get with him, but he has looked dominant the past couple of starts. In Game 2... Lucas Giolito will start for Chicago versus Spencer Watkins for Baltimore. Giolito is 9 7 with a 5.34 ERA, while Watkins is 4 3 with a 4.04 ERA. Uh Lucas Giolito has been underperforming, even though his record might not indicate that. His high ERA, he's been give- it, has been a testament to him giving up runs. As for Spencer Watkins, he has been lit great as of late and He's exceeded my expectations for this year. I truly didn't expect anything coming into this year. I didn't really like the guy, but he's proven me wrong. three, Lance Lynn will serve for Chicago versus Jordan Lyles. Lance Lynn is 3-5 with a 5.3 ERA, while Lyles is 9-9 nine and nine with a 4.61 ERA. Lance Lynn has also regressed this step, as his old age has, and injuries have been up, catching up to him. Lynn, uh, who was a Cy Young candidate last year, he was dominant has really struggled this year with injuries and it's really derailed him. As for Jordan Lyles, he has been the same old Jordan Lyles that we've come to expect, giving up runs but going deep in games. Uh, Unfortunately for him, he's giving up runs and not gone deep in games this past two innings, so he'll look to change that in Game 3. Now, Baltimore catches a tough break, like I mentioned, in Game 1 with Dylan Cease pitching for Chicago. Cease was actually supposed to pitch yesterday, uh, Sunday, August 21st. But uh, uh, uh but against Cleveland. But the game got postponed uh, due to rain. So his start will be pushed back to Tuesday night. Uh, and that game is probably the most intriguing for me. Dylan Seas has been pitching gems left and right. And he's up there with Shane McClanahan, Alec Manoa, Justin Verlander as an AL Cy Young candidate. But the Orioles have proven that they can hit off of other AL Cy Young candidates. Like I mentioned, Alec Manoa, they've shown they can beat him. Shane McClanahan, they've shown that they can beat him. So it'll be really interesting to see if the Orioles can get can attack Cease early and often. However, the last time the Orioles faced Cease, July third in Chicago, he practically shut down the Orioles order as he struck out thirteen. As the White Sox won four three, hanging on in stellar fashion. Austin Both matches up against Cease, which, as I mentioned, is is as uh, a great matchup as Both has been very dominant recently. Uh, Chicago's lineup is depleted and underperforming, most notably with their shortstop, Tim Anderson being out with a fractured thumb. Regardless, both will look to continue to build on his stellar last couple of starts this time on Tuesday night. As for the other teams around the league that are in the postseason race, Baltimore currently sits a two and a half back, here in the standings: So uh, tied for the first wildcard spot, it's a three-way tie between Toronto and Seattle, but Tampa Toronto Tampa Bay and Seattle but Tampa Bay has the upper hand and uh T- Tampa Bay as the tiebreaker Toronto as the tiebreaker over Seattle. So if the season were in today, Tampa Bay would finish with the first wild card spot with a record of 65 and 55. Toronto would finish with the with the uh, record of 65 and 55 and Seattle would finish with the third wild card spot with a record of 66 and 56. Minnesota is ahead of Minnesota and Baltimore a tied Two and a half games back at the last wild card spot. Minnesota's record is 62 and 57. They will be facing the Rangers for uh one for one game tomorrow before heading to Houston for a tough three-game series uh on games Tuesday through Thursday. Baltimore will also be facing Houston. So it'll be interesting to see how Houston does. Houston has a former Oriole friend in Trey Mancini. So we'll see how he performs against the Orioles if Dusty Baker ever wants to start him. As for Chicago, they are three and a half back of Baltimore uh, or three and a half back of the last card spot game back of Baltimore. So that's a huge series. The winner of the series could easily jump into the wild card spot or even jump to other opponents. Uh, Chicago's sitting at 62 and 59, as I mentioned, three and a half back. And then Boston is sitting at uh, 60 and 61 with uh, six games, sitting six games behind the last wild card spot. So they are falling off the rails. A uh, 16 and 62, my fault. Uh, the Orioles are sixty-three and fifty-eight. As I mentioned, two and a half back, uh, of the last wild card spot. Uh, so the Tampa Bay hosts the Angels starting on Monday night. It's a four-game series. They won't be facing Otani because he pitched today and struggled against Detroit. So it might have been in the best interest for the Angels, but still, it's like a cakewalk for the Rays this series. But you never know. It's baseball. Um, the Blue Jays will be heading to Boston after having a day off on Monday. And they won't have Manoa pitching that game, as he pitched today as well. So we'll see what they bring uh, to the table. So we would preferably want Boston to win so we could hop over Toronto in the standings. Um, and Seattle has uh, an off day uh, on Monday, and then they go back home and face the Nationals for a two-game series. As I mentioned, Seattle's schedule is really easy, so you never know what can happen but we need the Nationals, the Red Sox, and the Angels to come through. We also have to take care of our business if we want a chance at the postseason. So that basically wraps it up for the episode, episode six of the Birdie Breakdown podcast. I'm your host, Ella Cayanela, and I'll see you at the end of next series. Thank you for listening.